Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Thursday, May 6th, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my neighbor, Max. How's it going, my friend? Much better to be recording this podcast with you not after having gotten back from work. I was able to enjoy some vitamin D today, although I made the mistakes of thinking blue sky meant warm weather and went out in shorts hoping to play some spike ball, which and get to play spike ball. And I was shivering to the point of having to leave before the uh, potential players came, but still nice to get outside and see one friend. How are you doing? Doing well. I agreed that I need, like, it must be nice to get out in the sun. I tried to get out for about 20 minutes. Um, I've been dealing with the now new uh, pains of adjusting to the office work life. So eight hours sitting behind a desk, hunched over it's not not good for my back and um this podcast probably isn't either but <laughs> it's got to be done and um hopefully my body will make the adjustment uh and i guess maybe more standing breaks are needed <laughs> when we take our breaks in between yeah waiting on that uh, ergonomic sponsorship opportunity so far all we've gotten is uh, manscaping ones so <laughs> offers so waiting on that yeah they're in on everyone though so it's it's <laughs> it's not quite a compliment yeah <laughs> awesome well uh we're recording right now while the leafs game the raptors game and uh team canada just underway in the final of the u18 uh world championship tonight as well so lots of action that we you might get some live reactions from during this podcast but uh, particularly the Leafs having a four-goal period against the Habs cannot complain one bit. Uh, Mitch Marner's really good at hockey. Um, love that. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, we will uh, we'll do we'll be talking quite a bit more hockey than usual today, which is nice. Um, also got some combat corner lined up. We've got some baseball, a little bit of Blue Jays uh, catch up, and and a couple other things there and. And then some basketball and, and finish up with just notes from the Champions League. Um, much more difficult to follow now that you don't have a, or I don't have a housemate that has a vested interest um, because it, I don't know. I just find it's not nearly the same to watch these four uh, clubs, especially with, uh, yeah, without having that vested interest. So I have one thing to say really, but besides that, a lot more from the other stuff and, and really looking forward to that. And uh, I guess we will start with the biggest story that has been taking over the hockey world over the past couple of days. Um, and that was erupting from the game between the Washington Capitals and the New York Rangers, where Tom Wilson, a noted pest, whatever you want to label him as, uh, kind of like your bigger brawnier version of a Marchand with slightly less offensive skill. Um, he gets under the skin of the opposing team. He uses his physicality to impact games, uh, sometimes for not the best reasons. And uh, he got into it again with some rough stuff with uh, Pavel Buchnevich and also Artemi Panarin, who will not be returning for the rest of the season. And uh, I don't know if I had seen hockey Twitter in such a blaze 
than when the NHL Department of Player Safety announced that he was only getting a $5,000 fine, which is the maximum uh, penalty based on the current CBA agreement, um, but no game suspended for someone who has been known as a repeat offender. And, and I guess first, Max, I'd want to hear your take on what you thought when that, that ruling came down. Yeah, it, it sends a message that this isn't something the NHL PA is looking down on or trying to prevent was my main thought that they're more or less okay with what he did and just going with a slap on the wrist. The part that really shocked me was it's one thing if he's roughing up, I don't know, like a Corey Perry type or a like a third line grinder on, on another team. Right. But this is our Temi Panarin on the New York Rangers, your biggest American market with one of your biggest potential stars on that team, obviously an international player. So not the same level, but like a, a really solid player and, and he gets roughed up and there's really no uh, penalty to pay for Wilson. Yeah, a really important player to that team. I think he's their leading point getter. He's averaging like 1.4 points a game or something this season. Close. So really important player to the team. I mean, one of the biggest hockey regrets in our lifetime is the what could have been on Sidney Crosby's career because of that seat career change and injury that he had to deal with for several seasons can you imagine if tom wilson did that to Connor mcdavid and we lost out on some amount of health of Connor mcdavid i they're one of my favorite things about hockey is the physicality and the blurred lines i will never forget the look on my roommate's face from america when i explained to her what would happen to you if you went in too roughly against a rookie, a prospect, like a smaller guy, what the team of that player would do to the offender. And I love that about hockey. I think it adds a really interesting wrinkle and 90% of the time generates a good culture. And that's part of the story here. The New York Rangers did not have that returning uh, judge or enforcer whatever you want to call it so that's part of it there's no one to step in there and so it's a guy like Panarin who somehow ends up in the fold and there's still no one to really mess with Wilson till the next game yeah the the thing I would say before we talk about what came next um, is there are a lot of people who have the take where that's just hockey right and and that's a big piece that has gradually decreased from the current game is you don't have these guys like Wilson anymore who go in and just go after the other team's good players, use their physicality to really impact the game, especially after the whistle. Um, and that's how like the game has always been and should be. And what I would say to that is a, the game is changing and you got to adjust to that. But also just the fact that this guy has been known for doing intentionally dirty acts in games and that he did not even get a one-game suspension. And you see other guys' rulings coming out in the following days uh, for acts similar or even less heinous getting game suspensions. It just felt, it just was so startling to me that like this most controversial figure got off with a slap on the wrist. And, and that was the part that really stood out to me. Yeah, I, the only suspension I can really think of off the top of my head this season was against Alex Edler for the injury he put on Hyman. 
And I think it was uh, Kevin Bieksa, his former teammate, who pointed out, like, it's a split-second thing. There's a guy going past you, and you as a defender do not want him to go past you. You stick out your leg on reflex. But it's a very dangerous play, and it injured Hyman, so he got a two-game suspension that for something totally accidental, unintentional. So something like that kind of behavior by Wilson seems far more egregious to me than that, and Wilson, a far worse repeat offender. So I found myself agreeing with the New York, the tone of the New York Rangers statement that this was a horrible decision by the NHL Department of Player and Safety. I don't know if I have gone so far as to call for the firing of George Peros, but the most shocking part of this whole series of events to me is what came after the New York Rangers statement, the fine for that statement of $250,000. Now you've pointed out that the they hit Wilson with the maximum fine that they could. But there's something just from a macro bird's eye view when you look at this situation roughly, like, okay, you're fining this guy $5,000 for ending the New York or injuring the New York Rangers best player for the rest of the season. I don't know how long he'll be out. And when the team complains about it and is angry about it, you're fining them... uh, to what is that like 2400 times more or something something rough math is a lot more and it's obviously like finding people who can pay it like that rangers organization is that's pocket change to them but it's again the message the, the part that's so wild to me is you because it's hockey, it's not as big of a story as it should be, but this is the largest grossing market in a major North American sport where the leaders of that market are actively speaking out against one of the departments of the league. You would never, ever see this happen in the NBA or the NFL or the MLB because those commissioners run a tight ship in the fact that just nothing usually squeaks out. You'll see in the NBA, coaches, people criticize the officials um that's become common practice but really like to have an issue like this where like you actually have a team coming out and actively going against the nhl you knew batman was gonna have was gonna come down with a pretty heavy punishment and i'm surprised it actually was as public as as we saw um you did see the the general manager and the president of hockey operations of the new york rangers also being fired they said that that was not related. I don't buy it for a second. Um, there's got to be something there that happened because this was before the fine. Um, I'm guessing the, well, James Dolan, right, is not the most revered or liked owner, uh, to be blunt. The Knicks fans hate him. Um, also owns the Rangers, and I'm sure he didn't like that there, his two guys who he's trusting around this organization are going against the the NHL and that's just going to cause a lot of headaches for him. And so you imagine that he had to cut those guys because they went and okayed a statement that was going to bring a lot of trouble for him. And so it's, (laughs) it's crazy to think that so much punishment has come down now on the Rangers side when it was an initial act 
that was that they they were right about it's kind of thinking like you can't say that you're right but you can't say that <laughs> yeah i i do buy it that uh the firing and the timing was coincidental maybe it was accelerated just in the heat of the moment and the plan was to wait till the rangers played the last three games of their season i i don't agree with the reasoning that uh like them not making the playoffs is this big disappointment. I, If you look at the division and the teams that they're up against, it, you knew it was going to be a really tight division that had a lot of teams that were just deeper, better, and with more playoff experience and more veterans who were still close enough to their prime to play better hockey throughout a season. And you look like the New York Rangers decided they were going to do a rebuild. The GM assistant GM like two years ago and I think according to that timeline they're in a pretty good place with the draft picks they've acquired guys like Lafreniere um, Fox who you mentioned earlier looking like a ridiculous point getter already their goaltending seems to be shored up and uh, the aforementioned Panarin has been a fantastic free agent return sign for them so I, I think that's bloated and unfair expectations for this Rangers squad to have made the playoffs, but I, I do buy the uh, firing. Mm. So we got to the last leg of our drama here. Yeah, so we move into the retaliation, the expected retaliation from the New York Rangers. And there was talk about them signing a couple guys to go and fight Wilson or call up a couple of goons from the, the minors. Um, but a line brawl on the opening faceoff, and then another one later in the first period. I think uh, Washington had, there's that great photo circulating where they had six or seven guys in the box all chilling um, <laughs> due to the fighting majors. And uh, it was just a gong show in the pretty much the entire game. Uh, as soon as Wilson went on the ice, you had guys going after him and he leaves with a quote unquote injury. Um, I, it's a great call by Washington to get him out of there. I'm surprised um, they dressed him, but maybe it was just to give wash. Maybe it was like an admission. That, yeah. Okay. Take a couple swings at him, get it off your chest. Yeah. And then, cause if, if it's not that game, like it's something where every team would kind of be waiting, but especially New York to like, no matter when the next time he's on the ice against him, they're going to go at him. So it's kind of like, you got to get over it over with. Um, and I thought it was just funny. No one would fight Chara. <laughs> he was skating around looking for guys, uh, talking to the official while there are a couple scrums going on. He's just a big wrecking ball and no one really wanted a piece of him. And I thought that was funny. He actually got kicked out of the game uh, a little bit later on. And then the thing was with this like craziness going on, it really overshadowed a really cool and sweet story where TJ Oshi. Uh, scores a hat trick in the first game after the passing of his father. And they were honoring uh, Coach Osh that, that night and really like a special moment for him that was overshadowed by all of this nastiness. And uh, so I guess before we wrap up, I wanted to really touch on that and, and say congrats to TJ because that was a really cool night <laughs> at the end of all the, the darkness. I'll add one last closing note. I Find, I'm a little confused to find myself in this position, but I'll 
stay in it to two points in the defense of Tom Wilson. You mentioned at the start that just about how this hockey's always been like this. And the one thing I'll disagree on is Tom Wilson actually gets points. He can play the game. Like he's sitting at 33 points in 44 games this season. So I think if you look back at like guys like a John Scott, for example, um, the, the new breed of players, like I think you find Wilson a lot more closer to a Marchand or a Kadri than a John Scott or earlier type enforcers. So that is one way the game has changed. Like the, that role still exists, but the level of skill and offense required to step in and fill that role is much higher. And secondly, while I was watching the uh, in-between periods, they mentioned that Wilson did reach out to Panarin to check in that he's okay. So I, it might be, I don't know. It, it, I'll say it in his defense if you want to respond to close out. That's fair enough. Okay, my initial reaction to that is it feels performative. Although what I will say is that he is a guy where it feels like he he turns it on when he steps on the ice. It's as soon as we step on the ice, I'm going to make your life hell and be the least favorite person of every opposing fan base in the entire league. Uh, and when he's off the ice, I'm sure he's a nice guy. Um, so I guess my initial reaction was going to be he actively went and, and like sought out Panarin, grabbed him, and then like ragdolled him. Um, and he did that with malicious intent. But it's something that he saves for when he's on the ice. So I, I feel conflicted here sitting at the end. But <laughs> I, it is, I can believe that he wants to make Panarin's life hell. He wants to make the opposing team's best scorers afraid to touch the puck, afraid to see him anywhere near like 30 feet of them. And he also wants them to go home perfectly healthy and capable, but you have to pick your priorities there and choose your actions to match what his priorities are. And he clearly has not done that. Yes. Uh, to wrap up the East division, I guess right here is, uh, that game between Washington and New York, the Mass Mutual East Division is the first division to have its four playoff teams locked in, uh, Pittsburgh, Washington, the New York Islanders, uh, and the Pittsburgh Penguins, or did I already mention them? Boston. That's who I'm missing. How did I miss Boston? Uh, uh, so that means the Rangers are out, and the team that I was very high on and had picked to win the East Division, the Philadelphia Flyers. Uh, also did not make it, mostly due to inconsistent goaltending, uh, and they just didn't have that same spark that they had during their run last season. Um, and so that's one of my stronger picks that I made during our predi predictions at the beginning of the season. That's down the drain, but uh, three out of four is not bad. So pat myself on the back for that one. Better than I did. We'll move on to the central division and continue in the playoff vein there are three teams who are locks in this division the carolina hurricanes tampa bay lightning and florida panthers with the fourth spot still in contention between the nashville predators and my dallas stars uh, dallas has one game in hand and is four points back so there's four or five games left for both teams Anything can happen there. 
We'll see. But the team I wanted to focus on in this division is the Florida Panthers for the most part. Um, first off, Spencer Knight caught my eye as the winning goaltender of the 2021 2020 and 2021 World Junior Champions to our chagrin. Um, he did not win goalie of the tournament. That honor was reserved for Devin Levi, but Spencer Knight made almost just as many saves, just had a few less shots and a few less shutouts and had to, I think he his first uh, game was a rough start is the only reason he didn't take home that award. But a higher draft pick than Levi, both are on the Panthers. And I just wanted to mention Knight's been fantastic to start the season so far. He's 4-0, has a 9.19 save percentage and a 2.32 goals against average. A lot of those stats are off the back of an absolutely fantastic first start where he stopped something like 32 of 33 shots. And the performance has dipped a little, but you can't argue with four wins, zero losses. So... Not only do the Panthers have him filling in while Dreiger's injured, who's been great, and Bobrovsky's also been fine, but they've also got Levi still playing in the NCAA. So watch out for the Florida Panthers goaltending over the next couple of years. Yeah, I I, they're going to have to buy out Bobrovsky because they're paying him $10 million for another, what, like eight years? Um, so they're locked into that. That's just a brutal contract. And it was brutal at the time. Everyone knew it was brutal at the time. Um, so you could see one of these younger guys getting moved or uh, yeah, there's no way they can buy them out. They don't have the money. It looks like they're stuck with Bob for a while, unless he goes to uh Robita Island one day for them. <laughs> yeah, I guess we'll follow that. I, they're playing well enough right now. They'll get a good playoff run in maybe one, two seasons of that. And they'll manage to scrounge it up because it'd be kind of heartbreaking to have a team with that much promise and potential um, shackled just for lack of money. But I guess that's as a privileged Leafs fans talking. Uh, I'm not done praising the Florida Panthers scouting department because this other, that's stat line by night isn't, all that surprising this next one to me is a lot more surprising remember sam bennett the calgary flames player at one point projected to go first overall in the 2014 2015 draft i think he fell to like five or six maybe but supposed to be part of that promising core never really got going um got moved to the Panthers at the trade deadline for a second round pick more or less. And in his first nine games, he's put up 13 points, which is a better points per game average than he's, I think, I mean, it's only 13 games, but then I've seen him had it all during his NHL tenure. So it doesn't happen that often. I think more often than not, you see like a Galchenyuk-esque situation where player who showed promise once slows down gets moved to another another team and loses it it's too early to say for sure but bennett looking like a great pickup for the panthers and uh i just wanted to contrast that with the, the other player who was acquired for a second round pick taylor hall who has put up 11 points in 13 games for the boston bruins so much better than his average with buffalo as might be expected but uh, the Florida Panthers win the best player acquired for a second round pick at the trade deadline award. For now. Uh, yeah, Sam Bennett is a guy who you could see. He, he still was pushing the potential. He's still so young. 
Um, it's it's less of a Galchenyuk situation just because he still was on his first team, but you definitely could see parallels there. Um, the difference with Sam, I think, is he really wanted out of Calgary at that point um, because just he didn't fit in with that team. And you could see even when there were times when they'd move him up the lineup and he'd produce at a better pace. And uh, he's shown that he can play in a top six role, um, but just wasn't fitting in with the personnel in Calgary. He gets this new opportunity, breath of new life. He gets to live in nice, warm, sunny Florida, uh, playing on a team that is cruising towards one of the top two spots in, in the division. Um, actually, no, they're locked in a heated three-way battle, right? Cause you've got the two heavyweights, Carolina and Tampa Bay. Um, but Florida really, really special this season, the season that they've been having. And, uh, especially the a, second half without Ekblad. Exactly. Yeah. When you're missing your Norris trophy stud defenseman, um, that is just, it's great that they can get another addition from a guy like this. And, and Florida is a, a team that isn't going to bring in big free agents and um, they really have to build through the draft and look for value acquisitions like they have done with Sam Bennett. So uh, that's a great move and, and happy that he's been having some success. All right. We'll wrap up our playoff talk. Um, the West division is very close being to being locked. St. Louis blues need one point to lock up fourth place where they will probably play Vegas or Colorado Vegas leading that division right now. So they, they stumbled hard and they've sort of regained their footing, but they are very far behind the top three teams in that division, the predictable two and the well-called Minnesota wild by Owen. So can I, I think it's San Jose or LA. They would have to win every game they left on the schedule and St. Louis would have to lose every game left on their schedule. So chances are we'll be looking at an X next to their name tomorrow, whatever happens in the stats tonight, or if not tomorrow, the next day. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to take uh, this opportunity to take a victory lap. Um, I was absolutely locked in on the three uh, Vegas, Colorado and St. Louis absolutely confident in their ability to make the playoffs. And then I took a shot on this Minnesota wild team. I liked the vibe I was getting from them. And uh, Kaprizov has just been amazing this season for them. Like really, really fun. Feels a lot kind of like what Matthew Barzell was for the Islanders in his rookie season, where he drives a ton of that offense. And then the rest of the team is pretty defensively sound and, and takes care of things. Um, and they don't necessarily play the most electrifying style of hockey, but, they get things done and um, yeah, happy for them that they've been able to have another solid season. This Minnesota wild team just seems to hang around and hang around no matter what the end result is. Um, and so, yeah, go I on. That's, pick. I, yes. Congratulations. <laughs> I think this is the longest we've ever gone in our talking hockey segment without mentioning or bringing up the Canadian division, but uh here we go. I think we'll start on the McDavid watch. He had another two points, just that seems standard and almost not worth mentioning, except because we're so close to this 100-point pace. He's now on pace for 102 points, I think, with the average he's setting. But to get 100, he needs seven points in his last five games, which difficult for anyone not named Connor McDavid, but easy for Connor McDavid. So knock on wood, 
looking pretty good for McDavid 100. We'll keep updating every episode on that. I think I'm going to want to go through like all his highlights of the season and give the top five, top 10, top 20, top 30. I'm not sure, but uh, he, he deserves a little more than the obligatory mentions we're giving each episode. Yeah, for sure. Um, there's no more superlatives that you can really assign to him. He's been out of this world. And uh, yeah, all I can really hope for him now is he gets that record um, and that he has burnt himself out going for that record and then uh, falters a little bit come playoff time. Because if he's operating like this in the playoffs, then like you just don't want to see Edmonton in any of the rounds. Yeah, that's the Leafs have done decently with him, but I don't know. You might be speaking with your NBA brain where you think like one star player makes all the difference in the playoffs, like way more than the regular season, which is slightly less true of hockey, but McDavid might be the exception to that rule the way he's playing. Yeah. It just feels like at some point you're going to have all these Jordan memes of him taking it personally and getting ready to just drop uh, 50 on someone's head one (laughs) night and you just got to superimpose Connor's face on it. Right, we'll be ready to drop that as soon as we have an excuse. Uh, not a lot of Leafs talk to say. They absolutely blew out Montreal in the first period for nothing. Um, Montreal going with their third goaltender this game, who's I think played four, maybe five games this season. He let in a couple of softies, and uh, but Toronto has also been flying over the blue line. So those two things equaled a terrible first period for the Habs. They responded with one goal in the second. So we've got about 50 seconds left in the second period. 4-1 Toronto. This should be an easy two points tonight. Um, the fact that it's not Allen and Pr- or Price in the net doesn't let me get too excited about the playoffs just based on this game, but Galchenyuk and Tavares are scoring. Marner is filthy, as mentioned before, and the Leafs have been flying over the Habs blue line, at least in the first period. So they got one more game to practice that before doing it for real. But while they're practicing it, they can lock up that first spot for good. And uh, one more leaf note, just Frederick Anderson is finally returning to the ice in blue and white. Albeit Marley is blue and white. I think he's going to play half a game just to get his feet wet again, feel it out, play some competitive hockey. And on that timeline, he'll probably be good for one or two NHL regular season starts. And then Sheldon Keefe will have a very difficult decision to make maybe we talk about that decision once we see Anderson play in the NHL again. Yeah, I I don't have much to weigh in here on the on the goalie debate except that once again if he is healthy and ready to go, he deserves a shot because you don't lose your your job due to injury. Um but Jack has really shown that he can be a really capable number one guy and so uh hopefully there's no wrong choice here going forward man I, I worry about goalies mental states so much that I, I <laughs> such a if it ain't broke don't fix it mentality ride the hot hand but we'll see um one last hockey note I think you've been following the U18s a bit more closely than I have 
Yeah. Uh, and basically, I'll, I'll start this part by saying I better name my future kid Connor because it yeah. seems like if if that's this kid's name, then he's just going to be an absolute stud. Um, so the kid I'm about to talk about now, if you have not heard of him, um, you will in a couple of years from now because he is going to be the next great hockey phenom. Uh, he was born in 2005, not even 16 years of age. Um, and, and I thought we were still young, but they, he is nearly 10 years younger than us, um, which is really bizarre to think about. And uh, yeah, Connor Bedard, learn the name, memorize it, and await his arrival because this kid is superb. He is unbelievable, and he is outshone his counterpart, Shane Wright, who is expected to be the number one pick uh, in the draft year ahead of him. Uh, so the 2022 draft, Shane Wright, who had an outstanding rookie season for the Kingston Frontenacs. But this kid, Connor Bedard, almost 16 years of age, he makes the U18 Team Canada team and just has lit up the tournament. He's got 12.6 goals, six assists in the tournament. I had a hat trick in the semi against Sweden just yesterday. And uh, he is two points shy of Connor McDavid's um, tournament record for a player under 16 years of age. So two kids who uh, get onto the team at a really, really young age and both have just taken the tournament by storm. Um, he, they're about to get underway in the gold medal game against Russia tonight. But like the kid is ridiculous. He almost pulled off the Michigan in the semifinal, uh, wrapped the lacrosse goal in, almost pulled it off. Um, yeah, he's just filthy. And he's shown off the hands in a number of highlight videos. And just be ready for when this kid arrives in the W starting next season. Uh, he's going to light it up and really fun to see what his potential is moving forward. Team Canada, best of luck tonight. Puck should drop in 20, 30 minutes. And Connor Bedard, see you in uh, two years, three years. We'll be 2023 draft. So we'll be right back. And we're back for some combat corner UFC fight night coming up this weekend. Max, break it down for me. This one, a little unfortunate in that the main event, which was supposed to be Corey Sandhagen versus TJ Dillashaw, has been cancelled. So I wasn't too excited about this card looking at it on just when I saw what the headline was. But when I took a closer look, the first three fights on the, or maybe it's not the first three fights but the on the main card, but the first three fights I'm going to talk about all actually really excite me more than the main or co-main does. The other thing that I realized when I was uh, doing my prep for this is I think nine of the 10 fighters I'm about to talk about, I've already talked about once on this podcast. So we've been doing it for long enough that we're starting to see more and more repeat people and two people I've talked about matched up against each other. So, oh, I hope you've been taking notes and you're ready to recall. So this first one, a strawweight bout between Angela Hill and Amanda Ribas. Um, something really kind of fun about this is each fighter's last loss came to the two fighters who are going to be in the main event. But I'm somehow kind of more excited for this fight. The reason is I wrote about this in a blog post. I think each fighter 
presents the other with something they need, something they need to demonstrate in their skill set. So Amanda Rivas, it's fairly obvious. This girl's got that charisma. You can just see her being a very marketable star when she submitted Paige Van Zandt. I'm pretty sure she also has a win over Mackenzie Dern, which is huge. And she was showing a lot of talent, a lot of skill, the right personality. And then she went and got herself knocked out in the second round against Rodriguez, who I'll talk about in a bit. So she needs to show that she can go up against a striker and stay safe, do her thing. And Angela Hill is a quite good striker relative to the division. And she was very impressive in her last performance, but she doesn't get knockouts. I, I don't think she really has any on the feet knockouts. She might have one or two ground and pound finishes in recent years, but the threat that Rodriguez posed that took up Rebus out when she made a mistake and got caught I don't think will be there. So she can make those mistakes once or twice and get caught and it won't be fight ending for her, but she still can't make them so many times that she's going to get in trouble. And also I'll talk about this more right after I finish, but Angela Hill is a striker who knows grappling gets her into trouble, who knows when she stays on the feet against most of these other girls in the division, she wins the fight, but she loses when they get her down. So that's what she trains a ton. So Rebas gets a chance to go against a striker who will probably piece her up on the feet, who has about as polished and practiced takedown of defense as you can ask for. And for someone like Rebas with the grappling skill set, that's exactly the kind of obstacle you need to overcome. For Angela Hill, she had this really, what must have been excruciating stretch there where she had fights against uh, Claudia Godelia and Michelle Watterson. And both fights were one judge, one round away from winning, but she loses both by split decision. So what does she need to do? She needs to be more dominant. She needs to be so clearly ahead in the fight that the judges have no choice but to win it to her, give it to her. And part of that you saw in the Godelia fight is staying off the ground. In her last fight against Ashley Yoder, she executed that game plan perfectly. Yoder tried to take her down again and again and again, and Hill stuffed it, denied it, got the better of the clinch again and again and again. When they weren't there, she pieced her up nonstop, and it was a dominant, impressive striking display. And Rebus, she gets probably a more talented grappler. I'm not sure how the takedown threat compares, but at this point you've your momentum stalled a little even though that Watterson fight was fantastic and really close you you need to build that momentum again before you get another opportunity like that and just continue what she did against Yoder against someone who if gets her on the ground is going to be a scarier better submission threat she needs to keep it off the ground and maybe she can find that finish. It felt like she was close a couple times in the Yoder fight. I remember she kept going to the body and she looked like Yoder was hurt there, but she couldn't quite find it. So against an opponent who lost her last fight by knockout, that maybe there's an opportunity there. I think this is an awesome fight just in 
each fighter having what the other needs. Then this next fight honestly could be the main event. Carlos Diego Ferreira versus Gregor Gillespie. Both fighters coming off losses, but both fighters in the lightweight division. I'll say it again, the best division in the UFC, the most stacked, the most talent-filled. And there's Gillespie a little more interesting, curious, not quite sure what we're going to get because it's been longer since we've seen him. He looked so dominant in his first couple fights till he went up against Kevin Lee, got caught by a head kick, knocked out. It happens, but you've had a lot of time off. What are you going to do? Because you're going against Ferreira, who we saw against Dariush put up a very good fight, but get outstruck on the feet for the most part and get controlled on the ground, which was really impressive by Dariush because Ferreira has fantastic jiu-jitsu. It showed the confidence of Dariush in his own jiu-jitsu to go there. So it'll be interesting to see if Gillespie has worked has that same confidence that Dariush had and is willing to make the fight happen in the area where he has the where his biggest strength lies. But Fehera also has fantastic striking. Like you don't get to where he is in the lightweight division without being really, really good at striking. We saw that in the Pettis fight. We saw that in the fight before. I can't remember, but he took out a hyped Russian prospect. And so Gillespie is going to have to show that he's improved since the Lee fight, because if this fight happens on the feet and Gillespie hasn't improved, Fajara wins. If Fajara gets on top, Fajara probably wins. If Gillespie gets on top, that's where it gets really interesting. Does he have the dominant wrestling to neutralize the jujitsu of Fajara? Does he have the confidence to use it? And is it going to be dominant enough that he can actually look impressive with that, not just very tight lane and praying so this fight really interesting just because it's two really talented guys in a division where a loss means much more than it should just because of how stacked and shark filled it is next fight neil magny versus jeff neil this one also welterweight featherweight bantamweight all very close in contention with lightweight for like most stacked most interesting division welterweight probably the closest of those both fighters also coming off a loss where it was a levels to this game type performance uh neil magnine just out grappled out manhandled out strength by michael chiesa who's looking phenomenal and Jeff Neal, totally out-technique, out-footworked, out-maneuvered, out-jabbed, out-struck by Wonder Boy on the feet. So both fighters have run through a lot of the welterweight division and made it look fairly easy, and both have hit the wall that is the truly elite premier talent of the division. So that kind of puts them in a similar tier. Now, Jeff Neal has been maybe a little more dominant and he's knocked out almost everyone not named Wonderboy or Bilal Muhammad, though he did look very good against Bilal Muhammad. Neil Magny, I'd say, has faced the tougher stretch of competition. Guys like Anthony Rocco Martin, Robbie Lawler, uh, Li Jinglang, the leech. And it's been mostly wrestling that's gotten Magny through those fights. So I think this 
on paper is a striker grappler matchup where I'd say the gap between Magny's grappling and Neil's grappling is much bigger than the gap between the striking, but you'd think Neil has maybe a tiny advantage there. But Neil hasn't gone up against a grappler nearly as good as Magni yet. So it's going to be really interesting how he answers that test. Um, the younger guy riding a bigger hype train probably, so more riding on his shoulders to see if he can can go back to that knockout success that's made him such a fantastic process. But anyone who overlooks Neil Magny is going to be in for a rough night. And I think the striking gap is going to be very close. I, after Wonder Boy, this is probably the best striker Neil has faced. This next fight, uh, Cowboy versus Murano. The show has kind of been stolen by who Cowboy was supposed to fight, even for me. Um, in terms of the breakdown for this fight, you kind of know what you're going to get with both guys. Longtime veterans, very polished technique, aggressive, down to throw, going to meet in the middle. It's a bit of tactics at first. Cowboy's a slow starter, so I'll, I'm curious to see if Murano is going to join the list of fighters who have tried to take advantage of that. Some successful, some not. Murano's um, last fight with Pettis was a banger, so looking forward to the fight itself. Every time Cowboy seems to be on a slump and we're ready to count him out, he comes back with some impressive performances but you never know when it's going to be the slump to end it all so i'd say if cowboy loses this one or doesn't do anything too too impressive then that could be it his last fights against uh, pettis and nico price were very close but uh, a draw and a loss so curious to see how much cowboy's got in store but the the story you think of when you look at this fight is who Cowboy was supposed to fight, Diego Sanchez, who, man, he's the weirdest thing that's happened in the UFC, I think, for a long time. Diego Sanchez won the Ultimate Fighter 1, got a UFC contract, was the longest active fighter on the roster. He had two surprising wins very late in his career. Uh, the really interesting, entertaining one, the stoppage of Mickey Gall, which might have been the worst thing that could have happened for him because this is a crystal energies aura type guy. And he's talking about how he got Gall in the chakra point. He then meets a snake oil salesman known as Joshio Fabia, who convinces, basically be, starts a one-man cult with uh, Diego Sanchez as the only member, is constantly whispering in his ear, filling him with his, these ideas, becomes his only cornerman for some fights, gives him bad corner advice that does nothing for him, tells him he's winning rounds that he's losing, doesn't give him any advice that helps him win the fight, says these ridiculous things like Diego has a choke that will kill someone if he uses it wrong, and then when asked to demonstrate, can't. Uh, there's this bizarre leaked footage of him intruding on a UFC fighter meeting where he just tries to ream the commentary team for what they've said about his last fights, which is more or less everything I just said, that minus the snake oil salesman explicitly, they just implied it. 
And then it really came to a tipping point when Fabia calls the, asks the UFC for every record that uh, medical record Diego Sanchez has ever had. The UFC lawyer comes in and says, hey, look, if you have any doubts whatsoever about Sanchez's health, we're going to pull this fight right now. I do have mixed feelings about this because I think every fighter probably has some sketchy health things going on, like maybe a bit of CTE, and the UFC knows that. They just need to hear the fighters and their coaches say, no, everything's good, so that the UFC has covered their ass. But Fabia sounds super snaky in the phone call, which he recorded as if it's some kind of gotcha when it's just full lawyer talk by the UFC. And sure enough, a couple days later, the UFC decides they're going to pay Diego his show and win money and just part ways with that headache. So really sad to see the longest UFC career that was ever a thing end like this. It sounds like it's not the first time Sanchez has fallen for this sort of thing, though earlier is before my time. Uh, yeah, I, I hate this is like the drama episode because this story is kind of more fascinating and morbidly interesting than the fight itself. So we get to the main event, Michelle Watterson versus Rod Marina Rodriguez, I think. Um, Watterson's last win coming over Angela Hill in a fantastic main event and Rodriguez's being a knockout over Amanda Ribas. This fight's going to happen on at flyweight because it's short notice, which love, especially for women who have a slightly harder time with the weight cut, having higher body fat percentage and being lower in mass. So that's just more of their total mass they have to cut. So when you can get two fighters from the same weight class to fight up a weight class, then that usually produces a better fight because they're just at more of their potential. Michelle Watterson has this way of making strikers just frustrated. She doesn't do, she uses her karate style to maintain the distance she wants. She has the footwork to get out of the way. She uses kicks that aren't particularly damaging, the side kicks and the front kicks, but do a really effective job of maintaining space. And sometimes she lands those kicks to the head with like awesome timing and accuracy. Her last fight against Hilda was a banger. She decided to throw while maintaining that distance and it made for a far more entertaining fight. But Angela Hill is not the knockout threat Rodriguez is. So I'm curious to how Watterson is going to manage that. And for Rodriguez, it's a matter of, can you look impressive against this frustrating striker? Because if Watterson loses, it's more often than not grappling. The only person who's really well, truly, and convincingly outstruck Watterson is my favorite female fighter, Joanna Young-Jacek, who put on a striking clinic. So I think of Michelle Watterson as a part of the strawweight division that helps sort the elite from the right below that. Not quite a gatekeeper because I rank that a little lower than where I put Watterson, but there's the fighters like the Courtney Casey's that Watterson's just going to beat. There's the fighters like the Angela Hill, the Claudia Gadelia, 
the uh, Carla Esparza, who Michelle Watterson is going to have very close fights with. And then there's the fighters like Joanna Janjacek and Rose Namajunas who are going to dominate her. And those are the ones who are at the elite, the elite level, the top of the division, who are interesting title fights. So I'm looking at this fight as a measuring stick for Rodriguez. Where does she end up? Can she find a way to land her knockout power on this elusive distance maintaining karate style? And that's, it's a short notice fight. I haven't had a lot of time to think about it. It's not super high title stakes or anything, but that question alone, I think does make it an interesting main event. And I'll be back Sunday with an answer. But for now, we'll be right back. That was a pretty long ramble by me for today's, this part of the where we're at podcasting these days standards. My throat is dry, so I get to take a break and it's your turn, bud. Take it away. Yeah, so I'm going to kick us off with some baseball. Uh, the Toronto Blue Jays splitting the four game series with the Oakland Athletics. They claw back and take the last two games. Um, they lose George Springer once again to the injured list, uh, re-aggravating the quad strain something that needs more time to heal as opposed to an ankle where you can tape it up and kind of manage it as the season goes along. So they miss him for another week. It looks like maybe a little bit more and Alejandro Kirk, who was starting to break out as an offensive catcher for them. He's out for a month with a hip injury, just as they were getting guys back like Hunjin Ryu, um, who was on the Hill today in his first start uh, since he missed one. So 10 days ago and, and he gave them what, they needed gave up four runs over five innings uh, but the offense was back getting a big timely homer by Randall Grichuk in the third inning when they were struggling to get guys home uh, having six base runners combined through the first three innings with no runs and then he finally hits a three-run homer and breaks through Danny Jansen gets his first home run of the season so hopefully building on like I said on last podcast he broke through that slump and Hopefully he can just give them something. He doesn't even have to, like, if he's a 200 hitter, that's something. Um, and yeah, good to see him getting his first homer today. He does have a little bit of pop and uh, yeah, happy for Danny. And the Jays managed to build on that and have a great offensive inning in the sixth. Uh, and they win with 10 runs uh, today, this afternoon. Um, so good for them. They're still only two games out of the Boston Red Sox for first in the AL East, keeping pace despite uh, the multitude of injuries they have sustained over their early going. Uh, more Blue Jays news is they will be moving to Salem Field in Buffalo uh, on June 1st. So still Canada is not ready to have its teams back at home. Um, still looking to get the vaccine rolled out to a number of folks but uh so in the meantime the blue jays will be playing in buffalo like they did last summer and uh that is something that they're used to uh the guys have played their hit there uh investments have been made to make it a major league uh ready ballpark and and obviously the move was needed because you cannot play in florida during the summer uh in an outdoor ballpark which is what td field is so they'll be moving up north to buffalo and uh yeah, get ready for the super zoomed in camera like we had last year. Uh, that was interesting for sure. I'm actually going to move away from Blue Jays and do a little bit of other news, uh, something that's not that common to the baseball portion of the podcast, but uh, the Baltimore Orioles. John Means throws another throw. 
throws a no-hitter against the Seattle Mariners a couple days ago, but that's another no-hitter to add to the tally this season. Was it three or four now we've got this season? Um, seems to be on a pretty high pace. And, and just like I said, a lot of swing and miss guys now in today's game. So another thing that'll be interesting to keep track of, but congrats to, to John Means. That's a very cool accomplishment. And it's the first Orioles no-hitter in a very long time. I want to talk about the San Francisco Giants just a little bit, and not much research has gone into this, but uh, like I said, going into this season, I was very high on the two top teams in the National League West, and that was the Los Angeles Dodgers and the San Diego Padres. I had them marked as the two best teams in the league, and they were both in the same division. However, uh, neither of them are the leaders of their division as it stands right now, and that is the San Francisco Giants, who are getting the second-best ERA in the National League and uh, above-average hitting. <clears throat> and are playing way above their belt to start the season with a record of 18 and 13, uh, specifically 10 and three at home, uh, which is really, really good for them. But um, with the Dodgers, Dodgers scuffling as of late, trying to put together the multitude of talent that they have, uh, feeling a little bit like an early Brooklyn Nets scenario where they struggled to get all the pieces together, um, and the Padres kind of hum-ho, both those teams still above 500, but uh, the Giants have taken an early opportunity to seize the driver's seat in the division. Uh, they actually start a series with the San Diego Padres tomorrow, so we'll, we'll see if they manage to hold on to first by the end of this weekend. But I wanted to shout out San Fran because uh, they're a team that had a ton of success uh, five, six years ago, went into a, not quite a rebuild, but just a, year, a bunch of years where they were on the fringe and so far playing above expectations. So cool for them. Uh, and then the last piece of news, really big news that came through today in the MLB is the Los Angeles angels uh, are releasing oh, surefire first ballot hall of famer, Albert Pujols. He is in the last year of a 10 year contract, um, but he is, has put up just historically amazing numbers. He's 667 home runs over 2000 RBIs over 1800 runs scored like an all-time hitter. And when he was with the Cardinals, there were talks about him breaking the all-time home runs record uh, set by Hank Aaron. Um, not going to be the case, but still one of the very, very few who has hit more than 600 home runs and a really special career for him. He's very late into his career now, but hopefully he can find uh, a contender to join where he can bring a lot of his veteran leadership. And I'm sure he's still got some production left in him behind the plate, but a guy that just wasn't fitting in with the, the projections that the angels had this season. Of course, they've got Mike Trout and Shohei Otani. So, you know, they are looking for guys to add around those two top, top end talents because they have been mediocre for years on years, but obviously they don't think Pujols is the guy and he's going to get an opportunity to go uh, join another club and hopefully uh, add another world series to his immensely decorated career so um yeah hoping here's to hoping he finds a, a contender and excited to see what he can do there um so yeah big news today and a lot of people calling for miguel cabrera to be the next guy on that list released so he can go find a contender as he is stuck on the uh woesome detroit tigers i'm gonna slide into a couple quick notes about champions league that happened this week manchester city uh 
managed to play a defensive style of football against PSG and they win the game really tidy, 2 nothing. Uh, Riyad Mahrez with both of those goals and uh, City breaks the voodoo of the semifinals. Uh, could this be the year that voodoo is broken across all sports? <laughs> Fingers crossed, but uh, City does it and they are on to the Champions League final and it will be an all English Champions League final uh, as Chelsea takes care of Real Madrid uh, with two opportunistic goals of their own. And uh, Chelsea and Manchester City, two of the uh, top, top Premier League clubs about to go at it in a winner-take-all championship matchup, which uh, will be really, really fun to watch. And uh, we'll provide the result when we get there. But uh, until then, we'll take one last break and come back and talk some NBA. And we're back. Going to wrap up the pod with some basketball storylines. Where do we start? Absolutely. Uh, we will start with LeBron James, who had comments uh, about the play-in game that uh, I can't uh, talk about because I have chosen not to be explicit and <laughs> say explicit content uh, on the podcast. Just to... you want me to say fuck LeBron James? <laughs> not what I was going to say, but. <laughs> That is, he had some choice comments about whoever's idea it was to have the playing game after he had supported it a couple months prior. Uh, but his alas, time within a play-in game. <laughs> alas, it seems whoever is falling into that play-in game slot seems to have negative things to say about it. First, the Dallas Mavericks, uh, and now LeBron James and the Los Angeles Lakers, who at the time uh, when they were saying this had slid into the seven seed and were actually projected to play against the golden state warriors in that first playing game so that would have been a really really fun one lebron's just uh scared of curry and that's sparking these comments <laughs> scared of playoff stuff yeah i think he's just frustrated with how this season has gone with the injuries and, and la underperforming expectations because of that um but it was announced that he will be resting back-to-back games for us this season so that is only going to allow him like four or five games to ramp up before the playoffs. And based on where they're sitting in the standings, really right now, Denver or the Los Angeles Clippers are going to be the three, four seeds. We don't know. Phoenix, Utah are locked in the one, two battle. And then you've got uh, LA, Dallas, and Portland all in five, six, seven. You don't know where they're going to fall. And then eight, nine, 10, 11 of uh, Golden State, San Antonio, uh, Memphis and New Orleans. You don't know where those are all going to end up. So it's still hard to project the Western Conference matchups. But again, we could see an LA, LA first round, or you could see the Lakers sliding to seven and then they've got Phoenix or Utah in the first round as well. So um, it is interesting to see that they're going with health over trying to get LeBron into a rhythm before the playoffs. Uh, He really hasn't gotten a lot of time playing with Drummond. So it will be interesting to see because Drummond hasn't been great. And the reason they brought him in is because they knew LeBron could elevate him. Um, And so it will be an interesting thing to follow if they have a really tough matchup in that first round of the playoffs. Uh, I wanted to shout out our boy, Malachi Flynn. He was named the Eastern Conference Rookie of the Month for April, averaging 13 points, five assists, four rebounds, one and a half steals on 43% shooting, but 41% from three. Uh, Shout out to Malachi. That's a great achievement for him to have under his belt. He's building momentum. Maybe he shot, got a shot at second all-rookie all team. 
Um, I don't know if he's going to make it, but uh, yeah, a really solid month of April at a time where the Raptors have been resting guys and he's got the opportunity to shine and, and something to build on going forward into the next season. Uh, on the Raptors, they're playing right now against the Washington Wizards, who they're three games behind for the last play and seed. This is a must-win game. If they lose tonight, they are done. But if they win, the door cracks open just a bit more uh, and draws Raptors fans back in once again. <clears throat> I want to move on to kind of the two big stories of the week, in my opinion. Uh, the first of which was the two games we got to see uh, between the Milwaukee Bucks and the Brooklyn Nets. Obviously, Brooklyn, Brooklyn Nets, you have to take everything I'm about to say following this with a grain of salt because they are without James Harden, um, who will be their most ball-dominant guy come playoff time. Uh, but until then, we talk about the fun that it was to watch Katie and Kyrie go up against Giannis, Drew, and, and Chris Middleton. And wow, what a couple of games those were. Really, really fun to watch. The Bucks actually sweep both of those games on the back of some crazy performances from Giannis. Of course, he had 49 in that first one that I talked about uh, before, but um, had another big night on Tuesday and shot 10 of 12 from the free throw line, which was really big because uh, they actually were intentionally fouling him near the end of that game and he was able to make some of those free throws uh because blake griffin could not guard this guy like could not stay in front of him and uh every time Giannis settled for a jumper like now that i don't have a vested interest in him breaking threes as a raptors fan i was going oh my god what are you doing you're getting you can get to him anytime you want why are you settling so i can only imagine how Bucks fans feel. I mean, we got a little bit of that with Siakam. You get frustrated when he settles for jumpers, but with Giannis especially is a guy who can like get to the rim at will. Anytime he's taking those one dribble, like catapult threes, you, you just, ah, you wince a little bit. But the guy I really want to talk about is Drew Holiday, um, who every year seems to have like one week where he just plays in the huge matchup and wins that matchup against another top perimeter guy. And everyone goes, Oh, Drew's so underrated. We missed out on him. He's a top 30 guy, top 20 guy. How do we forget about him? Because then he slinks back in there and doesn't fill up the stat sheet, but he's always there. And, and I guess I bring it up again. This is one of the most underrated players in the entire league, obviously not super underrated because he's on his second max contract, but uh, Drew holiday, man one of the few guys you can see where he is tucked into Kyrie Irving's jersey. And that is difficult to say because Kyrie can make everyone look like a fool. And he does as good a job on a top handle finishing guy in the league. Um, his defense is super underappreciated, especially in this age now where it's really, really difficult to play quality perimeter defense. And that's what Drew brings, man. He is super physical. Uh, he's right in the jersey. One of the, like, Every matchup he craves, like Donovan Mitchell, Devin Booker, uh, he'll go up against, like, I don't know, Kyle Lowry. And, and some of these top, like, guys who drive the offense uh, from the perimeter, he is, he is a stopper. And if he's your guy who you can put on a James Harden or a Kyrie Irving come playoff time, you got to be pretty comfortable uh, with him providing that because he also puts up great numbers on the offensive end when he's expending a lot of energy on the defensive side. Uh, yeah, really, really impressive with him. And they, on the back of his great performance last night, 
they beat the Washington Wizards, uh, who was, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Russell Westbrook, who uh, will average a triple double again for this season, even if he gets zeros in the rest of the games this season, he has officially clinched a triple double average. And it feels like we take it for granted at this point, but it's so special what he's been doing, even in an offensively inflated era, just really, really cool what he's been able to do. And similar to last year, he built momentum as the season went along, partially injuries where he just started really slow, but also with Houston last year, started slow and then really built it up as the season went along. And he's, he's operating a high level at a time where the wizards really, really need it. The final big story I wanted to talk about was Nikola Jokic. <laughs> I love the photo of him from sixth grade. He's just that like pudgy kid who, um, you know, got picked on a little bit by his friends and uh, not nearly like maybe the least athletic kid uh, on the playground, but he is going to be the MVP of this season. And it's really, really incredible to see like all the different body types you can have in the NBA, like from a Zion to a Jokic, to a Giannis, to a LeBron, to a Curry. Uh, and they can all coexist in, in this environment. And Jokic is just like a total unicorn unto himself. Really, really fun to watch. I had to tune in uh, last night when they were playing New York Knicks because the Knicks have been really solid defensively this season and, and a team that is known for their physicality. And in the first quarter, Jokic drops 24 points on their head, just, and four dunks was everywhere. Like he had a couple of blocks, he had a steal, uh, he was dishing it and grabbing all sorts of rebounds. Couldn't be boxed out. Just it, like for someone who moves at a slower pace, it feels like, everyone else around him slows down. So even if he's moving slowly, everyone else is slower too. And so then it, he is playing at the same pace as everyone else. It's just so bizarre to watch. Like he should not be getting all the rebounds that he does because guys should be athletic and boxing him out, but he seems to just move people out of the way. And uh, the game just flows so incredibly through him. Like he's just a complete solar system for their offense. Uh, <laughs> like mesmerizing with this footwork so many of these hesitation handoffs and then driving to the rim because you worry about him handing the ball off to the guards because that's his role as a center. Uh, and then he operates out of the high post, low post from a three point line. He was throwing up a pump fake against Taj Gibson and then driving in. Uh, he gets to the free throw line. So many spin moves, uh, different angles where he makes passes. He can shoot floaters, crazy shots off his left foot or his right. Just really, really like remarkable, one of a kind offensive season that he has had this year. And to add on top, he has played every single game of the season. And that in itself is a massive accomplishment where injuries, rest, uh, COVID have just ravaged the league and he's managed to make it through all of that. So Nikola Jokic definitely has, if I had a vote, which I don't, I will never have, uh, he has, <laughs> you never know. Uh, he has my MVP vote for this season without a doubt. And you will see him on that uh, first all NBA team when we get there uh, on Sunday, but yeah, shout out to Nikola Jokic. He has his nuggets in the third seed right now, same record as the Clippers, but um down the stretch we'll see if he can he can drag them to that third seed and maybe he's got a first round date booked with LeBron and the Lakers 
all I've got to add to that is that it's a mark of greatness that you can make the dictate the pace of the game. Absolutely. All right. That's going to do it for this one. Thank you everyone so much for listening. Uh, we are on Spotify, Apple podcasts, uh, everywhere else that you get your content. We have a YouTube channel. I've dipped my toes into doing some of the editing now. So Max and I can split up uh, that workload. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Mine aren't, aren't nearly as high quality production. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just thank you for so much for the support. Hope you like it. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Share with your friends. Uh, yeah. Thanks to all our virtual neighbors out there. Tune in Sunday to hear our All-NBA and the first ever All-NHL team. Second ever, they did that last year. LeBron, I didn't mean it. I love you. Sports Next Door signing out.